The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Wednesday, February the 28th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. I was joined today by, they struggled through the snow to be with us, by our political editor, Pat Leahy, and by public affairs consultant and Irish examiner columnist, Gerard Howland. First of all, we asked about the current controversy over the Strategic Communications Unit. Pat, the Taoiseach was defending his Strategic Communications Unit and its purchase, I suppose, of advertorial content across the country in the Dáil yesterday and among other things he waived copies of equivalent material produced under um, a government which I um, which I think Gerard so was, was an advisor to by, yeah, yeah. Um, a, a few years ago is that a, a good defence? Uh, well it is attack as the best form of defence I suppose but to me it struck me as rather thin for two reasons um, first of all there was a difference between what the Taoiseach was waving around yesterday which was the same sort of advertorial pictures of Brian Cowan uh, tales of how the national the then National Development Plan was going to make all our lives better as uh, the um, government has been under fire for recently but there was a couple of differences in it firstly as far as I can see from the waving around in in the doll uh, to the extent that inspection of the pages was possible but certainly from seeing these sort of newspaper advertorials before and they're not a new uh, new innovation far, far from it. they tend to they tend to restrict themselves to the promotion of office holders to the Taoiseach or the Minister of Finance are the ministers responsible. And In fact, they would say that they're there for, for that they're there to promote the work of the department. The work so of just the that department. That's the only reason the minister, the minister being yeah. the yeah. you know the 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 legal personality of the department. Mm. Um, uh, in a way, to that extent, uh, I, I suppose it has always been uh, it has always been acceptable, or it has always been accepted. But the difference in what the present government is putting about is that it is the naked political promotion, not of office holders, but. Uh, y- yes, of office holders, but also of simply Fine Gael candidates, senators, in at least one case, a councillor who will be a Fine Gael uh, candidate at the next election, who I suspect not even he would uh, claim to have had an input into the national uh, into the national development plan. So this is, uh, to most people's mind, is naked electioneering, but it is being done at the government's expense and at the direction of civil servants. And that breaks all sorts of moral and, I think, civil service rules. Can I, can I just dig in? I think for the benefit of our <coughs> listeners as well, because there's some rather, I know we have rather arcane rules in here, for example, about various forms of advertorial, which is a, a form of commercial activity that I think pretty much every newspaper engages in in, in one way or another, some, some more than others. It seems to be newspapers and magazines with the word business in their title seem to be kind of 50% composed of this kind of stuff a lot of the time. Um, I would say that's a little bit unfair to my as former a, colleagues former, in the Sunday Business Post, f- but certainly it um, it is not unknown as uh, as as part of part of newspapers. And, and but let's are, be very clear yeah. about it: it is advertising. It is paid for by a client. Yes. Howsoever it turns out and what it looks like, it is paid for content. That's the difference between it 
and journalism. And it appears what was going on here was a concentrated attempt to elide the differences between those two types of I, newspapers. Well, completely content. accepting that, Jared, uh, part of Leo Varadkar's defence yesterday, I'm not quite sure how well it stands up, was that this content, the kind of content that Pat refers to there, was produced uh, independently by the, by, by the respective editors. In other words, there wasn't an instruction from the Strategic Comms Unit to mention a specific Fine Gael councillor in a piece mm. or to write that piece. Is that is that your experience of that? I know this this world is a very fast changing world, particularly since you know mm. since since the introduction of digital publishing. Uh, but is that your understanding of how these things worked? And when 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 you were working with with successive Fianna Fáil governments? Yeah, I suppose Hugh, the, the thing here is there's nothing dr- dramatically new, uh, but there is an appreciable difference, and I think the difference is critical. Uh, so you know, have there been advertorial and supplements and advertising of previous government initiatives? Uh, the answer is absolutely yes. Have ministers featured in them? Um, I, I don't believe backbenchers or, or non-office holders ever did, and if they did, it was a mistake that was sort of rapidly uh, not continued, principally because most office holders don't want to share that picture uh, with anyone else. Wouldn't would be one very good reason, by the way. Uh, there's a, another context which is to do with media. And you've you've touched on that. So there has been a melding over years between, for example, news and opinion within newspapers. Uh, There's a melding then between print and online and uh, between advertorial and and, and journalism, as Pat said. And now there's another context outside of print media in online social media. And in the last National Development Plan, print was in its pomp. Uh, Newspapers were engorged with advertising revenue. Uh, now they're on, their, on the floor as, as an industry, frankly. And I think that's another uh, factor that maybe we've been too polite to mention here. And also there's a small tactical detail. Uh, certainly when the last national development plan, there were two actually, there was one that was largely implemented from 2000 and 2006. There was another one from 2007, which was pretty much abandoned on impact. But in, in relation to the one that largely happened, uh, certainly there would have been care taken and I clearly remember this, to ensure that whatever was going out uh, and being placed was also placed in UK-based titles circulating here. Uh, And that did not happen in this instance. And I, I think that was a tactical political mistake as much as anything else in this instance. I think there would have been a stink about this anyway, though, given the... I accept and in that. Fact, I accept I mean, that. Fianna Fáil and other opposition but it would parties have been in the have been kicking up about this for some I time. I absolutely think you're right, Pat, but it would have been a more equal opportunity stink. Perhaps. Yeah. Well, let, let, Perhaps, let, but let, I think it's I mean, important. Let's, 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 hold on, hold on a second. Let me just be clear about what, what we're talking about here. I think it's a very interesting point, and you write about it in your column in today's Examiner. Am I right in understanding from what you say that... Um, the lead on this story has been taken by uh, the Times of London, uh, the, both, both the, the Daily Edition and mm. the Sunday Times, and that that might not have happened if the government had been more judicious in its apportioning of the cake? No, I, I'm not saying that. Uh, what I'm saying is that, you know, if you're a government uh, and you're a, effectively a political party in office, it behoves you to mind your own business in such a way uh, as you don't necessarily fall out with people who buy ink by the barrel. It, it, and, it may well be poor political management by the government uh, in that respect. Mm-hmm. But the principle of the matter still uh, uh, still rests. And it's important that people realise that. However you label advertising copy, whether it's advertising features, special promotion, special report, whatever you call it, 
There's a distinction between journalism and advertising, and that's at the heart of this here. This was advertising, and no amount of uh, bluster by the Taoiseach in the doll about how the journalists had, or the editors had independence on, uh, on the copy that they produce can cover that. If somebody pays for it, they have expectations about what comes out of that. Uh, are we really being asked to believe, as we apparently are, that it is simply a coincidence that Fine Gael politicians and candidates were the ones uh, that were promoted? It at might Great have been Glen an enthusiastic editor who thought that might be a wise way to well, pursue. It is still advertising for sure, political no, I, I'm purposes, not disagreeing with that, which is which is produced, process. which is produced uh, by civil servants or mandated by civil servants and paid for by the public purse. That's a very big problem. I think the big issue really here, the lasting issue, I mean, there's an issue for newspapers, clearly, because Pat is absolutely right. Regardless of where the ads were or were not placed, uh, they weren't properly labelled. It wasn't appropriately done. Uh, the, you know, the proposition that this was all done at arm's length. Well, this is the opposite to arm's length, because uh, regardless of who, who directed who to do what, uh, it doesn't change the factors of fundamental responsibility. And the strategic uh, communications unit is apparently part of the civil service. But my problem is, as somebody who was a political special advisor in, in government and attempted to do politics in government, this walks, talks, quacks like politics. I'm absolutely sure of it. Uh, and I haven't, you know, I'm not so brain dead yet that I, I, I cannot see that for what it is. This is politics. It's embedded now in something called the civil service via the strategic communications unit. This is a very, very serious issue for the civil service, which is an absolutely core institution of the state. And if you go back to the financial crash, there are all sorts of issues around the civil service, around competence, around judgment. Uh, but there was never really uh, any issue, in my view, uh, around fundamental integrity. And this raises an issue of integrity. And that's why it's different. And that is why it is so important. What do you make of that, Pat? And what, if, if, if Derrida is right, surely there is some legislative framework in place that's supposed to maintain this division between the, the political and, there are and, rules and, 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 about and the business this, of government. But th- those, those rules have been, uh, have been written down in recent years. Uh, in the civil service code, which prevents civil servants from uh, uh, from getting involved in political matters. But long before those rules were written down, there was a much more important basic principle. And Jared will know this, having worked as a uh, what's technically called a non-established civil servant within the civil service, which is the difference between political appointees, which are appointed for the lifetime of a government or a minister's uh, period in office, and the permanent established civil service who are the uh, who who work the levers that work the great machine uh, of uh, of the state and the important and long standing convention has been that those civil service didn't civil servants established civil servants the non political non specially appointed civil servants did not engage in political activity even when they were told to do so by their uh, by, uh, mistakenly told to do so by their ministerial masters now the spe- the strategic communications unit is comprised of established civil servants. They are not political appointees and it seems to me and to an awful lot of other people that they are engaged in political activity here. That is a problem and I think it is a 
problem that will not go away for the government. I think it's a problem for the uh, civil service leadership in the Department of the Taoiseach and elsewhere. And that's why opposition parties want Martin Fraser, who's the Secretary General of the Department of the Taoiseach, to come in and, uh, and answer questions in the Public Accounts Committee. I don't think this is going to go away, nor frankly do I think it should, because I think I agree wholeheartedly with Jared that it is a serious matter for the civil service. To what extent, Jared, is this a very modern phenomenon in that this is a government in the, well, dangerous to say the post-print era, but mm. for the sake of argument, for the post-traditional media er- era, <laughs> that this government perhaps sees the way in which it chooses to communicate with, with the citizenry or, or indeed as politicians as the electorate has changed fundamentally. We see this with the way that Leo mm. Varadkar puts out his Twitter videos every sure. Friday or there's an attempt, you know, Marionstreet.ie is a much more active entity than it was. In in this, as in many other walks of life from sport to business, um, traditional media gatekeepers or filters are being supplanted or replaced or being compete, com- competed with by new ways of communicating and some people see that as a way in which they can control the message better. Yeah, so you're, you're talking about methodologies. And of course, the methodologies of communication are changing rapidly. I mean, what we were at in government 10 years ago is now so old hat, you know, I don't think there's a shop selling that hat anymore. But it's, it's not old hat in a different respect. This is very old. Uh, how governments in office try and surmount systems to effectively politicise uh, agents agencies of government, including public servants. Uh, th- that's a very old story. Uh, you know, there are tinges of, of the, around this in terms of what's happening, in, for example, in Hungary and Poland. It's not remotely comparable in extent. And I, I don't want to overlabor the comparison. But there's an essential underlying principle about what's legitimately political and parties in government are political agencies. They should be political, um, but it's the government apparatus itself. In relation to the methodologies of communication, uh, I suppose, you know, Leo Varadkar is is very good. He's a very good practitioner, and that stands to him. That is to his credit. Uh, And I can understand his, A, frustration, and and B, presumably his determination, uh, you know, to shake up the communications of, 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 of government and do it better. And may I say it is a perennial frustration of, of all governments who look in the mirror uh, and they do not see reflected in your newspaper or the one I write for the Irish Examiner what they see when they look in the mirror. Uh, so that's, that's another frustration. Uh, so all of these tensions are, are fine, but something different has happened. It's different in extent uh, in one degree, and I think it's different in principle, which is particularly about how uh, civil servants uh, within a government department could used. I dig a little bit more into what, what you're saying there? Because mm. your column today, uh, in, I found it intriguing in that you draw a line all the way back to the the last the start of the last government, really, mm. in 2011 and 2012 and its attempt. And you look at its operations in the area of culture and creativity mm. and the way in which certain activities, which were previously dealt with at an arm's length removed through organizations like Culture Ireland, mm. were brought into mm. that particular department. Now, this is an area that for most people, I happen to be arts and culture editor, so I'm sure. interested in it. But for most people is a little bit arcane. Mm. But you see that as, as, as the first step of a process where... Government is trying to, I suppose, get rid of gatekeepers 
not not like in Hungary and Poland, but in a way, not not a dissimilar kind of a of a dynamic in attempting to bring decisions which previously were undertaken by autonomous authorities into you know in, into the purview of a minister, for example. Yeah, I mean, I think this really is a, 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 to some extent a cut and paste of, of, uh, via this new strategic communications unit of the Creative Ireland model, and some precedent for the Creative Ireland model had been uh, set up previously in terms of how the then Department of Arts handled uh, Culture Ireland. Now, this is quite arcane stuff, but essentially between 2011 and 2014, then Minister Jimmy Deanahan proposed to abolish the independent boards of the independent cultural institutions. That backfired. He was reshuffled out of the cabinet in, in the summer of 2014. One residual nugget that did happen was that uh, a, an outside hire who had been the executive of Culture Ireland, that term came to an end, and that function was simply taken inside the Department of, of the Arts, which is a significant difference uh, in, in, I think, an important cultural sphere, which is very sensitive in terms of freedom of expression, about who makes choices, about what is seen and not seen, uh, and is really to the core of this very important principle, the so-called arm's length principle, that while the state may and should set cultural policy, the state may and should fund cultural policy, the state does not pick and choose Pat Leahy's play over Gerard Howland's poem. Uh, that's not a political f function. And, and, and I think it, 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 it breached that and it contradicted a clear promise that that job, uh, when it had, the incumbent's term had expired, would be advertised. It wasn't. And then that function, which is now internalised uh, within the Department of Arts, immediately then uh, in 2014, you're in the lead up to 2016, which was obviously hugely important for the government and for the country. Uh, and by all accounts, the lead in wasn't happy. By all accounts, uh, not everything was going well. And the, and the Creative Ireland initiative came out of a frustration about progress or lack of it and be determination to do something. And that was very much a top-down act of political fiat that this is the money, these are the people and this is how it's going to be in 2016 uh, so that the, the event is appropriately marked. And it enjoyed a considerable degree of success. That should be said. Mm. Um, it would be hard to score it for failure in, in any way and, and you'd have to be fair and say in many respects it was very it was very successful. Uh, it was done at relatively short notice. But what you wouldn't find are many copies of application forms or criteria or, or committees sitting uh, marking uh, people's applications according to scores uh, uh, and so forth. Things were done. Uh, and decisions were made and it was made to happen. Uh, and maybe in the time span available, that is what had to happen on a once-off basis. But now it's been institutionalised twofold. It's been institutionalised in an ongoing Creative Ireland context and it has been copied and pasted over into this uh, strategic communications unit where coincidentally the first and second most important people came from the former Yes, I don't, want to, I don't want to personalise it. But no, clearly, I don't want to, because and, these are political but, but, and policy but, but decisions. There is a, and by the way, there is a connection and, and there, by the way, know, between who is at the head of... The, yeah. John Concanon, who is the head of Strategic Communications Unit, a very came from Creative person. Ireland, extremely capable, yeah. came from Creative Ireland before that. And, and his deputy is, is Sarah Mead, who previously worked in the Department of Arts, and she likewise is very capable. So I have no problem with these people doing what they're told. Uh, clearly, they're doing what they're told very well. 
my problem is the political and policy And, and am I right in suggesting that, and I'll come to you in a second on this, Pat, that, that, that you're suggesting that this comes out of a frustration with you know, bureaucratic inefficiencies, mm. uh, modern requirements to be open and transparent through FOI and things, which makes it more, even more difficult to do things or perhaps to make the right decision in a, in a prompt and timely and, mm. uh, and efficient fashion. That, that, that's a frustration at the, at the yeah. top of I mean, government. Basically, with, every with government things. wants to see in your newspaper what they see in the mirror. End of story. And if you don't see uh, they, what they see in the mirror, well, clearly your view needs to be adjusted accordingly. That sounds a bit scary. Uh, no, I mean, l- let's not lose the run of ourselves. But I'm just saying, you know, ministers in government are politically driven. Uh, they have a vision. There's a natural frustration that, that everyone doesn't see things as, as they do. And these things, if they're part of an inbuilt tension, can actually be quite healthy. You know, it's part of the ongoing row that you're going day in, day out between government and media. Uh, That's actually good for democracy. But I think in this instance, it's taken a step further in the wrong direction. That's the critical difference. It also, I think, demonstrates the shortcomings of a marketing approach to politics. Marketing is relatively straightforward. Politics... Politics really? is a lot more. Yeah, well, the half of it that works is, isn't it? Um, but uh, but politics is a lot more multifaceted, uh, I think, and there are an awful lot more pitfalls. And there Has are, politics, though, not become more like marketing in recent years, perhaps driven by some of the technological changes we're talking about, that we look around the world, we see, you know, Donald Trump is as much a media entity as he is a politician wielding power. And the same is true of significant figures in British politics, for example. Yeah, that's not a great thing, though. No, I'm not saying it is. It is not, it is not a great thing. And some of the bulwarks that stand against that are uh, independent media, independent parliament, and the uh, autonomy and responsibility of institutions like the civil service. And I think that is... One of the reasons why this is, I think, you know, I mean, in some ways it's a classic political bubble story, but it is important beyond that because it affects those things. Is it a problem for the government that it has become such a relatively large story? I don't think it's a terribly serious problem with it for for the government in political terms, but I think it disrupts their promotion of the Ireland 2040 National Development Plan, call it what you will. And that was one of their big gigs for the year. And I think that um, I, I think that's one of the reasons why it will rumble on because the opposition, and Fianna Fáil in particular, has a vested interest in keeping the controversy going so as to disrupt the marketing effect that the government had anticipated and planned for when it began this big advertising campaign. I think it will disrupt that and uh, and I think that's a bad outcome. Because I do wonder Jared, I mean one of the attack lines <coughs> I, mean, I think particularly from Fianna Fáil against, uh, against the Fine Gael led government over the last you know, year or so, particularly since since, since Leo Varadkar's accession, has been that it's all spin and no substance that it's, that, you know, that it's marketing driven, that it's all about socks and jogging with uh, mm. Trudeau and, and all this kind of stuff. It doesn't seem to have done Leo Varadkar much harm so far. No, it hasn't. Uh, and this story and all political process stories are far less interesting to the great majority of people on, on the outside uh, than they are a very small number of people on the inside. All of uh, whom listen to this podcast. And 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 three of whom are, 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 are talking about it to some extent. Growing listenership. You know, so we, sh- we shouldn't, uh, as I say, be losing the run of ourselves. But remember this, that the ultimate... Um, defeat of of any political marketing or communications campaign is parody. 
Uh, nothing is worse than becoming a joke. And it's entirely in Leo Varadkar's hands and in the government's hands and whether it pushes this so far that eventually it becomes parody or a joke. It has not done so yet. But that would be the eventual uh, destination if you kept on going this, uh, you know, relentlessly. If you look, for example, at Prime Minister Trudeau's visit to India, where he was going around in one outrageous uh, outfit after another, day after day. Uh, I mean, it would put Panty Bliss, who couldn't keep up in the wardrobe <laughs> department. Uh, you know, th- there's a man who, you know, uh, was, what, 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 you know, is, is now part parody. Uh, maybe he'll get over it and get through it. But you need to be careful about the communications. It, it, is that on the one hand, you, you want to be bold and brave. And on the other hand, you don't want to become a cartoon of yourself. Yeah, There's also, I, I think, something that I was going to say earlier about the government, about Leo Varadkar's defence on this in the Dáil yesterday and various off-the-record government briefings that have been taking place for the last week, which have been essentially that, look... Bertie did this and notwithstanding, you know, the many wonderful things that the uh, governments that Jared so ably specially advised uh, brought uh, brought to the nation. I think Bertie did this as well is not the greatest defence in Irish politics at the moment. It wasn't how Leo started out, by the way. How did he start out? Well, I think he started out with excoriating criticism of the said Bertie. You know, so to, to end up and, you know, Bertie did this is, uh, well, that's the parody bit, you see. That's yeah. where, actually, insidiously, Leo has done most damage to himself. And does he, Paradise. like, I wonder, Pat, you know, I'm looking, looking at Twitter yesterday afternoon, I remember the day before, and a, a tweet by Leo Varadkar, campaign for, at Campaign for Leo, came up, and uh, expressing his absolute delight that a movie was to be made of the book, uh, Oh My God, What a Complete Ashling. And I thought, really? Have you not something better to be doing at three o'clock on a on a... Tuesday afternoon. I mean, does that kind of thing, does does that do more good than bad? Or am I just being a bit prissy about it? I think perhaps uh, a highbrow culture vulture like uh, yourself or political nerds like myself, although Jared wears wears both hats. Rarely a day goes by without, oh my God, what a complete Ashling being referenced in the pages of the Irish Times. (laughs) Precisely. Um, uh, I, I think we're not his audience for that type of thing. Mm. I think the, uh, the people who don't pay um, daily attention to politics, but do pay t- daily attention to Ashling, whoever she is, uh, are his audience for that. And I think there's a certain element of that that is smart politics. And one of Leo Varadkar's great political attributes has always been that lots of people have seen him as not really a politician. They've seen him as someone who is straight talking. He doesn't sound like other politicians and uh, he's not your typical politician. And in an anti-political age, that has been a great uh, that, yeah, that's been a great advantage. A bit like Bertie Ahern in his In the early days. However, he may be, uh, I think, in the process of uh, of 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 transforming that appeal because ultimately that appeal must be finite. Once you've been Taoiseach for a while, it will become apparent to people that you are in fact a politician. But I think he may be trying to 
cling on to that. It's Uh, a bit like sort of very powerful independent deputies talking about their establishment, notwithstanding the fact that they have been elected to the Dole many times and are wielded a considerable influence. Doesn't doesn't Leo Varadkar, didn't he take that completely out of the Bertie playbook, kind of wringing his hands about terrible things that were happening in the country and something should be done? Leo's great capacity is to talk about government in in the third person as if it was something he was observing rather than something to leaving. Leading, and that's a genius. Or you know, and you know, that was also that was Bert, also yeah. a, a mark a, 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 on Bertie Hearn, Wilson, especially in his early days. But of course, political leaders yeah. change over the but, course. But if you go back to the start tenure. of modern media in the sixties, Harold Wilson, of course, was a man of the people because he smoked a pipe and drank beer. Actually, he was smoking cigars and downing alarmingly large quantities of brandy. <laughs> <laughs> which, which, which gives me great pleasure whenever I think of that. Listen, speaking speaking of British Prime Ministers, actually, Pat, I just briefly need to touch on, I mean, our page lead, our front page lead today in the Irish Times is Brexit is back on the agenda. Um, what the hell is going on? Where are we in this great game right now? Uh, we're at an important uh, staging point in it where what the EU is publishing today, the European Commission is publishing today, is its draft of the Withdrawal Treaty between the UK and the EU. Now, it's a draft of that treaty based on the political agreement that was made between the EU 27, that's the remaining members of the EU, and the British government back in December uh, in advance of the the December summit. Now, what the today's draft contains, and it's the Commission's draft and it's a basis for negotiation, but it's produced by the Commission because they've had very little engagement from the British government since Christmas on uh, on producing this draft. Um, I read in one of the British newspapers yesterday that uh, David Davis, the Brexit Secretary, has not been in Brussels since Christmas, which is slightly staggering when, uh, when you think about it. So this draft treaty will be produced today and it is to be finalised by the time of the next summit which takes place at the end of uh, at the end of this month, the end of March um, there will be opposition to it f- today from the Brexiteer wing of the Tory party and I suspect from uh, the DUP in the north on whom of course uh, Mrs May's government depends for its survival because it incorporates in its legal text uh, in its draft legal text the third option agreed by the leaders before Christmas, which was that uh, in the absence of agreement between the EU and the UK on what to do about a border, uh, on the maintenance of an open border in Ireland, there will be uh, equivalence between, or there, uh, there will be uh, essentially an extension of the single market uh, Just very to, briefly, the, the, to the, the north. The three options uh, are, one is that the UK as a whole remains within a a customs union environment so that therefore there is no negative impact on and the border of Ireland. And that's not going to happen. And option number two is that Britain comes up with some fantastic solution, technical or otherwise, that means that effectively there is no... no and that no has not happened border. yet. And, and the, the, the third, third one is the option one is the guarantee by the British government to maintain, uh, to maintain the open border by essentially keeping the North in the customs union and the single market. That, of course, because you could, the rest of the UK would be leaving customs union and the single market means that there are some class of border checks or some sort of a border down the middle of the Irish Sea and that's why the DUP are going to go bananas about it today. Will the DUP be going bananas because they have to go bananas or because they're really going bananas, Jared? Because presumably this needs to be set against the backdrop of a major shift at Westminster this week with Labour changing its Mm. position. So the question of the customs union is coming to the fore at the apex of British politics as we speak. Well, I'm not sure it makes much difference uh, whether they feel they have to or they are. Uh, The fact is they do. Um, and they've taken, a, I think, a policy option, you know, pre-Brexit, through Brexit, 
up to the, the current time that this sort of you know ultra uh, sort of British uh, position. And what fr- completely confuses me about the DUP is that this completely turns upside down and inside out the fundamental primeval view of the late Dr. Ian Paisley, which is ultimately the British could never be trusted. And yet the DUP now is putting all its trust in the British and they're putting their trust in the British uh, in the sense of a government with the narrowest of of margins on the shakiest foundations. And I think the late Dr. Paisley must be turning in his grave at the political stupidity of so much being bet in, in, in terms of Ulster unionism. Uh, on on this British government in this context because he, over decades, always had the exact opposite fundamental proposition that no, James Molyneux and Enoch Powell are fundamentally wrong. We cannot trust in London. We must trust in in ourselves. Uh, I wonder, is there an internal dynamic there? Because obviously there's a dynamic within the DUP with the Westminster MPs on on one side and local politicians and MLAs. They have gone from complete irrelevance and the sidelines, uh, you know, to to centre stage. And maybe they are dazzled in front of the footlights. But those footlights won't be on for much longer. At least they won't be pointing at them. No, this is a short term situation in which the DUP finds itself. And I suppose they're attempting to use every level leverage that they uh, that that they have in that situation but this stems from the basic inherent contradiction in the british position so the british is a british government has been saying we are leaving the single market and the customs union and there will be no hard border in ireland those two basic positions are uh, are incompatible and that is why we're at this stage now it would work itself out over the next couple of weeks could I think lead to a complete breakdown uh, in the negotiations though I don't think that is as yet the most likely outcome but the British government is maintaining those two positions those two contradictory positions that cannot exist together um, in reality because it has not chosen itself which of those uh, which of those positions that it will pursue. And there's a question sorry, whether the Conservative Party in government uh, can actually be <coughs> kept together any longer than the two contradictions can be kept together. Because they Precisely. are because they are yeah. held by the two parts of that yeah. government. And what of the government here then? I mean there's been some tension obviously between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael and some of the you know some of the words of Michal Martin have suggested that you know that Fianna Fáil would have handled this better because of its long uh, stewardship of the peace process and the Good Friday mm. agreement and, and and everything that followed. But then in turn Bertie O'Hearn I think was slightly critical of Michal Martin from you know from moving slightly away from the traditional unified approach to this. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's there's a little basis for, for both, um, if you like, takes on, on what the government has done. I mean, I think the government has done politically as government over the last year and a half, two years, pretty much what it should and what it can. Uh, I, I think where the Fianna Fáil criticism is more valid is if you look at sort of a, a six or seven year trajectory going back to 2011, that the government politically uh, has not been nearly as active on the ground at all levels in Northern Ireland from the bottom up. I think a lot more time uh, across the government in the Republic was put in across a lot more range of issues and, and parties and uh, sort of civil society groups in Northern Ireland in the past than has been the case over the past couple of years. So in a sense, I think on that aspect, the Fianna Fáil criticism has some validity 
But uh, is there something that Leo Varadkar's government should have done? It hasn't. I don't really think there is. Listening to both of you, Pat, finally, it looks to me like there could be pretty bleak prospect for any kind of satisfactory outcome in these negotiations over the next few weeks. Yeah, and um, Taoiseach mentioned again, this is in our uh, lead story this morning, and Taoiseach mentioned this in the Dáil yesterday. He said we could be in for an interesting few weeks. The northern, the process of trying to uh, bring the northern parties together appears to have been suspended until uh, uh, until at least after the uh, EU summit at the end of March. Um, ultimately, it's a question in the first instance for the British government. What position does it want? It says it wants to leave the customs union, uh, but it wants to maintain many of the advantages of uh, staying in the single market. It wants to maintain access to the single market for many of its goods and industries. It wants to leave the, but at the same time wanting to leave them. That's not going to fly uh, with the EU. So ultimately, the, the British government will have to decide what it wants. This is the great frustration that I hear in Brussels every time I go there, every time I speak to people over there. What do the British want and how do they think they're going to get there? And ultimately, despite the fact we're heading for two years from the referendum uh, uh, over the coming months, um, that position, that simple statement of what the British want and how they think they can get there has not yet been satisfactorily answered by their government. And there is no answer. And ultimately, you know, come to point of decision, you know, there is a reasonable basis for assuming the Conservative government and or the Conservative Party together will simply shatter. On that happy note, we'll leave it there. And gentlemen, thanks very much for trudging through the snow into us today. And that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks to our producer Declan Conlon and our engineer JJ Vernon. And remember that you can subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider may be. And you can also find us always at irishtimes.com slash podcast. Your views are always very welcome. You can mail me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com or I'm usually hanging around somewhere on Twitter. But until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much for listening. 